Thank you very much. Um, well, welcome. We're a small select band of individuals. Um, and as a result, rather than us standing up on the stage, I think it would probably be easier if we just sit here, if that's okay with you. Um, now, this is aimed primarily at nurses who are working in practice rather than nurses that might be based in academia. Um, and as such, it's very basic. I know that some of you are based in academia. I say some of you, two of you are based at the university, and, and you are as well. So um, apologies if this is actually just teaching you to suck eggs, you know already. And feel free to leave if, if it is. <laughs> but we'd like you to stay. Um, so the title of the, the workshop is uh, Don't Be Afraid to Ask the Question. And that's really what it's all about, asking the question, um, thinking in terms of whether or not there are things you can do, just as Louise said earlier, to improve your practice and getting into that mindset. So our objectives. Um, an introduction into the basics. Discussion of the, the issues that we should consider as registered veterinary nurses when thinking in terms of perhaps trying to answer the question that we set ourselves. And a little, uh, a brief introduction to the, the um, methods that we might use, how we might go about obtaining the evidence. Um, in the context of a 45-50 um, minute session, it's a lot of information to get through, particularly as we would also like you to be a bit interactive. Um, that doesn't mean that we'll be getting up on the stage and doing stuff, but we will ask you to engage with the process as well. So we want to set aside a little bit of time for that. Oh, we've gone. We're back. First thing to say is not to be afraid of the, of the whole process. And I think um, for nurses in practice that haven't had the advantage of perhaps writing their own dissertation when they've been undertaking their degree, um, it may well be that a lot of the jargon that uh, is um, to be found in the research process is very off-putting. Uh, and as a starting point, we thought we'd quickly go through some of the words that you might come across, some of the terms that uh, people, uh, well, I would say that some of these terms put people off because they're difficult to get uh, one's head round. And um, so the, this is a, uh, by no means a, a comprehensive list, as you can see, but we thought it would be a good starting point. So the difference between quantitative and qualitative, for me, it's about uh, quantitative or empirical research is about numbers. Uh, qualitative, qualitative is about words. Number crunching versus words about, uh, versus narrative. Methodology, uh, the term is used to describe very loosely the philosophical background to the research process. And I put up there pure versus soft science. The, the uh, pure scientists that spend their time in labs uh, would argue that the only way to investigate is to crunch the numbers because it's uh, a robust approach to research and therefore 
uh, qualitative is um, something that really is of very little use. Uh, the health sciences, nursing in particular, I would argue that that uh, narrative, observation, um, these sorts of processes of methods are really very useful because it can tell us a lot as nurses about the world around us. Uh, critical analysis, basically thinking critically, um, in as much as it does mean that we are asking a question all the time. We're not thinking in terms of the fact that we don't like the colour of somebody's dress. Uh, we're asking ourselves a question that needs to be answered. So we're being critically aware. And finally, I think it's been very interesting today to uh, listen to other lecturers talking in terms of a hierarchy of evidence. And uh, it is considered that randomised uh, controlled trials, RCTs, are the, the gold standard. But some of the evidence we've heard today is that that's not necessarily the case. How long has evidence-based practice been around? Well, you can argue that uh, Florence Nightingale did her bit way back. And if we read this, it tells us that in the 1800s, Florence Nightingale said that um, sanitation in nursing care, though not entirely true, and lacking scientific fact about germs and bacteria, um, observed that patients healed faster if the materials used to treat them were clean and if physicians washed their hands. It's not rocket science, is it? But in those days, I have to say it was. And she actually said, what you want are facts, not opinions. The most important practical lesson that can be given to nurses is to teach them what to observe how to observe what symptoms indicate improvement, which do not, which are the evidence of neglect, and what kind of neglect. So again, she was basing her practice on a sound evidence base, sound for those days at least. So, first bit of interaction for you. Take um, 30 seconds. Think about what the term actually means to you, and then we'll compare notes. This is what we think it is. We think it's a mindset. So, I've already men uh, mentioned critical appraisal. We are questioning nurses, we're not just accepting tradition, as you've just mentioned. Uh, transformation of knowledge into that that is useful. It's not just about finding, answering the question. Actually, that question needs to be a useful one. And not just to us in our practices, but also ideally disseminated into the wider world. Um, and it's, I think this is quite useful. It's the gap between what is known to be effective healthcare and anecdote. And evidence-based veterinary nursing, I think we need to take ownership of this. 
Um, we need it because we're professionally accountable. And we need, as a profession, to um, identify our own specific knowledge base. Human-centred nurses have a, well, a much bigger profession than us. They have a very large um, and significant and robust evidence base. We need to start thinking about how we develop ours. And again, back to this business of tradition, we need to challenge <clears throat> rather than accept tradition. But what's wrong with tradition? As I've said earlier, it's worked in the past. Our head nurse taught us how to do such and such. Uh, her head nurse taught her how to do it in that way. And it's always worked. So is that sufficient? Well, we would say nowadays, because we're modern thinking, RVNs, that it's not sufficient. But as a, that is not to completely discount it. Experience is important. So, I've just been standing next to a veterinary surgeon, next to those PICO questions, who said, there was a particular question, I'm sure, I'm sure we already know that. And so it, it might be that we've done it like that, and it might be that that's the best way to do it, but until we run a study to show whether it is or not. And that, that, so she said, I'm really surprised at some of these questions, because I, I, already th I thought we already knew the answer. And they can be really simple questions, but actually we need the evidence now to, to say whether or not they are correct or not. So... Um, what do you say to the owner who asks you how you know that a particular diet will be effective for their dog? Uh, you're in practice, a client with an overweight border terrier um, has come to your, your, we don't call them obesity clinics, we call them um, weight management, thank you, uh, and you suggest a particular diet and she says, well, how do you know that it's going to work? What do you say? What's your response? Well, I don't know that it's going to work, but I get a 5% cut of every bag. <laughs> Probably not. No, that wouldn't be professional. Um, you might well say, uh, I have um, quite a significant amount of information from the pet food manufacturers that seems to indicate quite clearly that this does work. Uh, would you say that that's entirely appropriate? It sounds quite reasonable to me. Is there anything wrong with it? It would be biased because it's actually the pet food manufacturer that is, is telling you the information. Not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that the information is incorrect, not at all, but it is certainly biased and that's an important point. So we want to try and identify best evidence. And potential benefits to veterinary practice as far as, as our um, thinking, critically thinking, uh, reflective um, veterinary nurses concerned. But we have uh, an insightful approach and we develop informed practice. And I think that that can do only good, as far, particularly as far as, as uh, patient welfare is concerned. 
Um, and this Venn diagram is, is uh, really quite appropriate because we don't bring in, in best evidence, which is what we're talking about here, that's the crux of the matter, but we're also thinking in terms of not throwing the baby out of the bathwater, we're basing it, our uh, best evidence on our um, clinical experience, we're using the input from both, and we're not forgetting that we can also gain valuable information from our clients and also from our own patients. But we mustn't be biased here, so let's think for a moment about barriers. I, uh, this has already come up, Louise think, mentioned it, and time is probably the uh, um, single biggest barrier. Uh, finding the time to become researchers in your own clinical practice is very difficult. Nigh impossible. Um, I think a lot of, of RVNs would argue, and uh, Louise's suggestion of identifying a member of the practice team who has a particular interest and perhaps setting aside some time for that person to engage with the process on your behalf and to engage with the rest of the team is quite a useful way of trying to maximise opportunities. Um, it's all well and good looking for the evidence, but if you don't have enough evidence to promote change, then again it can be somewhat demoralising. I've already mentioned at the outset that the, the jargon involved, the language that's involved in uh, the research process can be very off-putting, so particularly to those people that are unfamiliar with it because they're just only starting on their journey of engagement with uh, the research process. and. Um, if you can't apply what you've learnt into uh, to clinical practice, to changing your practice, to improving it, you could argue, not necessarily, but you could argue that it's actually a waste of time. So, we've got another circle here. We had a circle earlier. This is the evidence-based circle and we start Top right hand side, we're reflective practitioners now, we know that because we're told we must be. And uh, we reflect on the potential for change, we think in terms of um, asking a question that relates possibly to our practice, possibly to the way the practice is run, we want to change something for the better. So we set about finding out what is out there, doing a literature review. We then, potentially, that will tell us what we need to know, but we might need to go on to the next step and design our own study. And um, once we've done that, we need to analyse the data and then we need to look at implementing it. And it's because it's a circle, because it's cyclical, that brings us back to the start and it may be that we want to go on to the next stage and refine our initial question. Quantitative, qualitative. Remember at the outset I said simplistically it was um, 
it's pure science versus uh, the soft science, the social sciences, the fluffy stuff. Uh, another way of putting it, again simplistically, is that number crunching, the hard science, is all about the black and white. The thing either is or it isn't. Uh, whereas qualitative research uh, is about exploring the world around you and being involved in the research process. So it's objective on the one hand as opposed to something that's more subjective. The researcher in qualitative research tends to have um, a greater influence in the research process and that is um, not a requirement for uh, quantitative. In fact, it's a bit of an anathema. Um, the focus in uh, quantitative is, is concise, whereas in qualitative it's much broader. And quantitative tests theory, whereas qualitative develops that theory. So you're approaching uh, your research from completely different angles. Um, I think the uh, bullet points at the bottom are really quite important. So quantitative, single reality that can be replicated, can be measured, can be generalized. And in qualitative you have multiple realities that are fluid, that are constantly changing. Here's our hierarchy of evidence, déjà vu. But this is a slightly different one, in as much as this incorporates at the bottom of the hierarchy, or towards the bottom, we also have descriptive, qualitative studies, which, as I said at the outset, are not considered as robust, because they're not as measurable. So, where can you find this evidence? Louise has spoken in some detail about um, where the difficulties about um, finding evidence, literature reviews and such like. So we, I think, can afford to not to spend quite so much time because I don't want to, well, hopefully not bore you with the process. Um, but do, if you want us to stop and explore in greater detail over the next few slides, do by all means chip in because as I said earlier we are a small select band so um, we're very happy for you to do that. So critical review, uh, the internet can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Um, Google Scholar to those that don't have institutional access uh, to the internet can be uh, a very useful starting point. Um, your quality, your uh, question and answer quality assurance template is actually quite useful. Focus on what you want to ask, where you want to find it, where you think you'll find it. Be very logical in your search, and understand what constitutes good data. And again, you've heard quite a bit about that earlier on today. If you want to generate your own evidence, you are limited in practice, but there are things that you can do, and we'll talk about that a bit later on. Uh, again, you want to be logical. You'll need to think in terms of how you're going to design your survey, how you're going to analyze your data, 
the need for statistical analysis, which of course we all run away from screaming. Um, but there are people out there that can help you with that if necessary. And then not only drawing those conclusions, but also the implementation. I think everyone here again knows about the use of search engines and databases. Um, the, the one at the top there, and unfortunately the RCVS library have lots of databases that they don't have a nursing database. What they do do is they do have at least 20 nursing, human-centered nursing journals that they subscribe to. Um, but what they don't have is CINAHL, and Sue's going to say what CINAHL stands for, because I've forgotten. <laughs> Cumulative Index of Nursing and Allied Health Literature. So here, we're all parts of a... Do you, are you an alumni of a university? So you, no, I am Fine. Okay. Well, that's really good. So there are nursing journals and there's, there's evidence-based nursing, etc. on there, but they don't have this search engine, which the, the, the universities do have. So that gives us, those in those institutions, does give you a bigger net, actually, to, to look for things. Um, so RCVS Library, if we're not in there, and again, we were saying we were targeting people who perhaps were from general practice, but, you know, and you already belong to it, so that's fantastic. Um, so I'm not going to go through this because there are lots of textbooks that actually tell you how to critique and review an, a, an article, okay? And this is a step-by-step -step process that you can go through. The RCVS Knowledge Templates help you look at that. They're, they're actually checklists in themselves, so they help you identify the sorts of research that you might be reading and, and what to look for in that. Um, so we're not going to go through that in, in great detail or this, but it, this, this will be up and it does say what it is you're looking for in terms of whether or not that article is relevant to, to you. And, and obviously Ali's here having come through and done a knowledge summary. So again, that's another way of sort of gaining the evidence. In fact, what was yours? What did you look at? Um, the difference between using and, and doing using using the system that you use, what you, how much did you find? I had uh, over two hundred papers from PubMed, um, and I can't remember how many we have, not as many. Um, I came up to articles that were relevant. Yeah. So that just shows you, you know, that that, that there's lots for us to do. <laughs> Um, and then obviously, uh, 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 so this is looking at articles and going through them, looking, looking systematically at, at what they're telling us and, and, and the discussion as well. So um, this, I'm going to leave you to read this, um, and particularly the bits in green, and then we're just going to, we're going to pick some bits out of here before we then get you to do the, the reason you're here, really. <laughs> okay, I'm sitting comfortably. So... The bits in green, I think, are the uh, useful. Um, it's the useful stuff to pick out. So, <coughs> um, an established body of evidence. That's a very general phrase, isn't it? What does actually does that mean? We want more information about that. Uh, the greater the proportion of registered nurses at uh, graduate level, 
the better patient outcomes. Again, somewhat general, what, what are these patient outcomes? Uh, does that mean that uh, fewer patients die, for example? So if we then go on, it says a comprehensive and, ro uh, comprehensive and robust studies. Well, again, it doesn't really tell, tell us a lot. But the data here is that a 10% increase in graduate nurses in the RN um, team was associated with a 7% reduction in 30-day inpatient mortality. So on the face of it, that sounds quite positive. Um, then the next paragraph, uh, a recent systematic review and meta-analysis. Now our hierarchy of evidence tells us that, you know, that's the bee's knees. Or is it? Because again, it depends upon um, how rigorously they were carried out, as we've learned earlier on today. Uh, supports this finding, 10% increase in the proportion of nurses with degrees associated with a 6% reduction in overall mortality. Uh, so again, another um, uh, study appears to show clear evidence that degree nurses do make a difference. Um, would you want to add anything to that? Would you want to comment? Is there anything else you want to see? Anything missing from that? It's a, uh, an introduction, it's a, an abstract, um, it's the sort of thing that you're going to be scanning when you're reviewing articles to see whether or not it's useful to actually go on and read the article in full. Um, it does talk in terms of meta-analysis, um, systematic review, etc. It doesn't give any real idea of the uh, study populations. So the, this is um, quite a, um, an overarching statement to be making, albeit that it is the sort of information that you'll get in an, um, an abstract. So it looks as though there's a clear statement of intent there. Um, it looks as though uh, there is a clear outcome, and so it might be useful to look at this article in uh, greater detail. Yes? I think that's a reasonable assumption to make. So, um, generating your own evidence. When you're designing your own study, I think four words that are useful to bear in mind. Um, relevant. Is it going to be useful for you? Are you going to be able to carry it out? Um, is there going to be a reasonable number of um, individuals in your study that makes the outcome um, robust and of um, you, are the useful are the outcome useful for your needs? Is it going to be um, usable? Are you adding to existing knowledge in carrying out this research? Or are you just adding another study which is not really going to um, add an awful lot of any great interest? So if that's the case, and you've got to be honest there, if that's the case, then why carry it out? If there's enough um, evidence in the literature reviews, in your research into the journal evidence, then you may not need to carry out your own uh, study. 
So uh, people talk in terms of something being robust, and I think the previous slide talks uh, goes to, to it being a robust study. Is it feasible? Uh, is it valid? Uh, it should be free from bias. And bias is something that is inevitable in um, qualitative research, uh, and you need to accept that and be aware of it. That is the important thing. The ethics of the research that you might want to be carrying out is important. Think not just about animal welfare, that's critically important, but think about the human stakeholders, the um, clients, your colleagues, other individuals that might be involved by the study that you want to um, uh, might be involved in the study that you want to, to undertake. And um, one of the things that we picked up actually only quite recently um, in the coffee break, I think, was that the RCVS do have a facility that enables you to run a study past them for an ethical review, and that's worth bearing in mind. Um, the sorts of things that you can undertake in practice, as I said earlier, it's, it's quite limited, but that doesn't mean to say that the data that you generate isn't going to be valid, provided you design your study um, in a robust manner. Um, retrospective uh, surveys of, uh, of um, case reports, uh, patient records, uh, diagnostic data, uh, that I think people do find somewhat boring, but it can be incredibly useful. And it's worth bearing in mind. If you're using patients or patient data or anything like that, you certainly need to have a discussion with the other stakeholders involved. And that's primarily going to be uh, your practice manager, your um, practice principals. Um, depending upon the nature of the survey, um, you should also think in terms of running it past the, the RCBS, because there is certainly an ethical dimension in that, as I was saying earlier. So yes, definitely. Surely you won't be able to publish something that contains patient data it would not be, it would be uh, published anonymously, so the data would be anonymized. So you're not actually going to be publishing um, patient details no, no, per no, se. No, no, no. to you. So we have a lot of anecdotal practice. How are you going to test that anecdotal traditional practice? So just, just have a read through these four different we, because we knew time was going to be against us, we came up with four different types of research that could potentially be undertaken in, in first-minute practice. 
Um, so first one, measuring the compliance of hand washing amongst ward nurses. Um, comparison of hypothermia risk in geriatric hospitalised patients compared to non-geriatrics. What are the experience of student nurses during their first clinical placement? And experience of clients undergoing bereavement following the loss of a pet from cancer. So just think about those and think about, bearing in mind sort of methodology and methods. So think about whether or not the sort of data you'd be getting is qualitative or quantitative that would give you the best results in terms of it being robust research. And then once you've decided on whether it's method, which methodology you'd use, think about what tools, if you think about methods as tools, what tools you would use to gain that information most effectively. Okay, so have, have a look at what's up there then. So we thought, and you can agree or disagree, you know, but we thought that, that if we're looking at compliance, then actually that's a sort of quantitative study, really. Um, observation, microbial disclosure, random swabbing of staff, that sort of thing. Yeah. Any anything else to that? Um, no. Okay. Um, comparison of the hypothermia risk. Um, again, quantitative because you could do categorisation of patients into two groups, monitoring body temperatures at specific intervals, that sort of thing. So that's fairly straightforward, and you get a lot of quantitative data on there. Um, the experience of student nurses during their first clinical placement, we sort of felt that's qualitative. And what we're doing there is we, we are getting what Sue sort of referred to as this sort of soft evidence, but it's a narrative of, the, of an individual experience. We could interview, but the interviews could, could be, they could be closed or open questions or, or, or mixed. Um, there could be group discussions with students getting the feel for what the experiences they've had and sharing them, or they could be questionnaires or surveys. So with that, there's a, there's a lot more sort of scope depending on what it is you want to get out of that. And you could do one and then that would lead to another. You do not also end up kind of yeah, so you could say that, you know, 70%, you know, said that they agreed with this or strongly disagreed or, yeah, so you could, you could have it, yeah, absolutely. And then, then the final one, the client experience of undergoing bereavement following the loss of a pet. So again, qualitative, you know, feedback form, one-to-one -one interviews with third parties, somebody like a, a counsellor, not necessarily somebody from the pet, one of the nurses, but a counsellor. Did you have anything else to add to that? Good, that leads on to our next slide then. <laughs> because that's absolutely right. What we've been hearing all morning really, and what you're probably going to go on and hear is is you know quantitative gold standard, but what you can do from, from a from a social science point of view is you, you can have the qualitative and the quantitative. So you can have those questionnaire results, but then you can add power to that by adding a personal quote. From, from, from a student or from a client that really supports what the, the statistical sort of data is, is showing. So you're sort of doing it from a sort of more sort of a, a human point of view, really. Mm. Um, but anyway, so just so that you're aware, and if you, if, I'm sure some of you are aware that that's a sort of mixed methods approach, 
Um, and it is frowned on in some some quarters, but in other quarters it's sort of seen as a really powerful sort of research um, methodology. I think particularly in healthcare, uh, it is, as you say, very powerful because it does give you a multi-dimensional approach. The, the data that's being generated gives you a much broader insight into the reality of what's going on. So I don't think we as nurses should discount um, either a mixed approach or a, a qualitative approach. Uh, just to um, finish up, because I think we're nearly, uh, nearly to five o'clock, uh, we wanted to point you um, back to the RCBS um, website and particularly the templates. Have, have any of you reviewed those already? And um, they can be the, and, and I'm sure will be the basis of the development of your own templates, your own uh, research templates. The only thing I will say is that they are primarily aimed at a quantitative approach. So they will probably need to be amended and redesigned for your uses. And I think that would be a really useful exercise for a group of nurses to engage in. And I think, why not form our own research group of, of uh, veterinary nurses? The time is right. Um, useful resources. Uh, lots of websites out there. Um, RCBS Evidence website, of course. Uh, Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Nursing at Nottingham. Um, Canadian Centre for Evidence-Based Nursing. There's a textbook there, uh, which is quite useful. If you actually want something tangible to get your teeth into, uh, you can have a look at that. And uh, I'm sure that Amazon will do it at a uh, reasonable rate. Other online booksellers are available. And then I think this um, summary, I've taken this from the Nursing Times, and I think this encapsulates quite nicely what we're, uh, where we're coming from. So evidence-based practice is integral to healthcare. It doesn't matter what your patient is, what species your, your patient is. It's a challenge for those providing nurse education. So we are aware that there are barriers but that shouldn't dissuade us. It means developing and supporting patient-centred care using the most current evidence. Nurses must be able to identify and evaluate the evidence, and this is something else that uh, Louise in particular did raise, that, that at present the veterinary nursing profession is a little um, behind the times, and we need to get on and start doing some more work on this. I appreciate it's, it's difficult because we are still a very small profession in comparison to human-centred nursing, for example. So it's never going to be particularly easy for us. And finally, evidence-based practice must be core to professional development. And uh, we are professionals. We're part of what I still consider to be an emerging profession. And as such, evidence-based practice does need to be embraced and owned by veterinary nurses. Thank you. So one of the things Sue said to me while um, while Louise was talking earlier, and I don't know whether you do it already, is to have a veterinary nursing journal clubs. 
because that will then get your junior staff as well thinking about and presenting you know papers and why they've chosen it and what they found do, do, do we do do that at Bristol is that try it should be global yeah, yeah. so maybe they yeah. I think I think it. Do you do it? Do you do it? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. But but it's almost something like if if your junior nurses, so interns, for example, could, could be their role to then take that forwards, you know, not the the, the senior staff, but get your junior ones who've just been doing their research projects, they know how to do it, and then it's less scary, and they can choose a topic, but they have to do it, and you come up with a sort of timetable, and, and it's sort of staff are expected to attend like one in three or something like that, but it, that was Sue's idea, I just think it's really brilliant. I just want to talk about that. Okay, that's fine. It's five o'clock, um, do any of you have any questions?